Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Adam Dorsey, a clinical psychologist in private practice in San Jose, California, where he specializes in working with Silicon Valley's high-achieving, high-functioning adults. Dr. Dorsey has appeared in the news and in documentaries and gave a popular TED Talk on men and emotions. He is the co-creator of an international resilience program at Facebook's headquarters and continues to provide resilience training in the high-tech realm to digital ocean. He speaks to various organizations on a wide range of topics, including men's psychology, the science of happiness, mindfulness, and adult friendships. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure. And uh, this topic, your topics are really wonderful. Today, we're going to be talking about adult friendships. But even your work in men's psychology, there just doesn't seem to be that many people talking about men's psychology topic. I saw some statistic recently that women tend to be by far and large the consumers of self-help psychology and just men don't seem to be consuming that as much. So the fact that you're speaking on these topics and you're becoming an expert on it and presenting your material, I, I really, really happy to see that. Well, I'm so glad to be a part of it and just get such a high working with men as they begin to uh, really take better control of their lives by getting off the horse, taking a look around before they continue riding off into the direction they're trying to ride, using a metaphor there. Before we get started into the meat of the podcast, I should mention that you and I have known each other for a long time, and who better to have a discussion with about adult friendships than two people who have been friends since, what, since college, right? We've been friends since we were 18. Just before college, we met at one of the orientations. We hit it off talking about violent femmes and how much we thought Gordon Gano's voice was hilarious. And it was kind of like we were pinging each other, just saying, hey, do you feel me? Are we kind of on the same page here? And it was green light, green light, green light really fast. And I just remember having such a strong connection with you. And it continued out through freshman year, sophomore year, junior, and well beyond. And you've been championing me over the years. I've been championing you. I've been really seeing a lot of parallels in how friendship evolves in general just by using our case study as a template right. for how it evolves. Kind of start off as kind of just having a, a common interest, but it grew, I mean, into something far richer over the years where we were really able to affect each other's lives in profound ways. And I'm really grateful for that friendship, Aaron. Yeah, so am I, Adam. And um, it was interesting that you mentioned about the evolution of the friendship. But it's interesting how you mentioned that we originally connected on music. I mean, that was where we connected, right? That was it. And it sort of went from there. But I'm just wondering if that's sort of, well, we'll get into all of this. I know there's a lot of material here. But I'm just wondering if like men connect on common interests like music. And that's sort of what launches friendships. Should I go there? Because I can. I, uh, you know, let's come back to that because okay, I want to get a little bit more about your background. <laughs> I know right. it's, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sure, um, no problem. I'll, I will totally, so it's been teed up. We will, we will attend to that later. Absolutely. So let's start off first of all, but just getting a little bit more about your personal and professional background. Sure. I was kind of a, a late 
developer in uh, the psych world. I uh, had initially gone out valiantly to get my doctorate in my 20s and allowed myself to kind of get derailed from the process, really wasn't ready for it in terms of my own maturity and my own conviction in doing that. And I found that there was no question being in the corporate realm was far better than being a lonely, hardworking and starving grad student. And at that time, that <laughs> seemed like the right decision, like, oh, okay, well, I could make money or I could really work hard towards something that I'm not totally on board with yet. And over time, you know, I've had a really successful and in many times very pleasant corporate life. I ended up marrying a psychologist and every day hearing about her day and remembering that that was supposed to have been my day. And I was a psych geek. I loved it. I had a master's degree in counseling, but I kind of just let it go. I decided it was a good time for me to consider maybe coaching on the side. And I enjoyed the coaching process. I became certified as a life and an executive coach. But I really wanted to do it full time, and it was hard to scale that type of work full time. And one famous evening for you and me, I'd been, you know, <laughs> been been kicking around the idea and kicking myself for not having gotten my doctorate earlier, because being married, having a child, and a child on the way is not the ideal time to go all in and try to get a doctorate and go through the fiery hoops of becoming licensed as a psychologist. And you brought it up after I was bemoaning the fact that I hadn't done it. You had a few cups of sake too, if I recall correctly. Cups of sake. We're eating it at one of the best sushi places in all of Honolulu. And I just said, oh my God, Aaron, how did I not do what you're doing? I wish I had. And you said, well, you still can. And I just put up my hands to like give you the Heisman saying, dude, stop it. We're not talking about this. But you being a great friend, you were not going to... Uh, take my, <laughs> my message. You, you had a bigger message and you said, you got to do this and here's why. And you kept just going at it and going at it and going at it. And finally you had that Muhammad Ali punch by just saying, your wife has always had your back. She will totally have your back on this. And I knew you were right. And I reported to Orion, greatest wife ever. Hey, I know we own a house. I know we have a kid. I know I've got a full-time job with benefits. I'm getting that doctorate. I'm going to become a psychologist. And she just said, thank God. Yeah. And it was her laying the groundwork and you actually getting the satisfaction of the final punch that got me back on the road to, you know, the career and the life I've come to love so much. Yeah, I can tell. I mean, you've been a changed person since you began your path down psychology. And uh, I breathed a sigh of relief myself because if there was ever anyone who was a natural psychologist who should be in the field, it was you. So, right, thankfully the world has a wonderful psychologist because you changed paths and you went in that direction. Well, thanks so much. And, you know, and, and it's a real testament to friendship as a thing. And one of the reasons I'm so obsessed with it as just one of the most important curative elements to one's life and something that's so lacking. I, I, I often go back to that time in 2007 when you and I were talking about, about this, and uh, it just seemed like one of those moments that could only come from a really trusting and intimate friendship. Yeah, and yeah. that was actually an, another question I wanted to ask you about this, is how you became interested in this topic of adult friendships. Were it, was it experiences like this that piqued your interest in studying it and understanding it? 
Sure, as a confluence of a whole host of things, I'm really curious, not just how people are miserable and sad, but I'm curious how people are happy. What is the template for happiness in a high, not just a number of years, but having life in those years? And one of the elements that keeps coming up in all of the research is that we have social brains and we need friendships, we need good relationships. Nobody can do it alone. I always laugh at that silly song from Barbara Streisand, uh, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. I mean, that's, I mean, mm-hmm. everybody needs people. I don't care who you are. You know, nobody is a rock, nobody is an island. We all, unless we are bona fide psychopaths, we need people badly, a lot more than we're willing to admit. What I'm seeing both in the United States as a larger experience, but also in my office as a smaller experience is a lot of loneliness mm. and people are not feeling affiliated with anything besides work and coming home and unplugging, going onto Reddit, numbing themselves through social media and not having real face-to-face friendships, oftentimes because they've moved for their job or because they have diverged from, had divergent paths from their friends and they don't at this point know how to find new friends or it's kind of an uncomfortable process to cultivate a new friendship. How do you do that? I'm working with some of Silicon Valley's most successful people, most of whom are incredibly friendable, like just people, mm-hmm. if it weren't unethical or illegal, after a session, I could see myself saying, hey, let's go grab a beer and talk about life further. You're a really cool person. I can't do that. But many of these people really cite the absence of good friendships in their lives. And that is catastrophic. Loneliness, it has been shown uh, by significant studies to be as toxic to one's health as 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, people, I mean, their cardiological health, their mental health, and a host of other factors really rest upon having quality relationships, not the quantity, but it is the quality of those relationships that mm-hmm. matter. What are some of the other problems that you see people facing in your practice who are also complaining of lack of friendships and loneliness? Like, what's the typical presentation? Sure. Well, the sadness or depression is exacerbated. We really need to feel connected to other people. Current studies show that the brain that we have today is the same brain that we had 40,000 years ago. It was previously thought to have been 195,000 years, but current studies are saying 40,000. Regardless, mm-hmm. so much has changed in terms of us going from a tribal society, feeling a social connection. It used to be that if you were banished from your tribe, it meant certain death. And we still have artifacts of those feelings. Even today, when we feel isolated or alone, Loneliness is not a choice. Being alone is good if you want to have solitude and some quiet for a period of time. That's great. But loneliness is toxic. It's something anybody would ever choose. And here are these great people who are just either consumed by work, they've moved to a new place, they've shifted from their friends, they've fallen out of touch, uh, or they're unwilling to cultivate new friendships and they're suffering from those negative toxic effects of loneliness. You know, you mentioned like just being too busy, busy careers. Now I'm imagining I'm from Palo Alto. I know what Silicon Valley is like. I know how busy people can be there. And so being overscheduled and having too much to do and too little time for friends sort of seems like an obvious one. 
right? Like that seems like an obvious reason why people would have the excuses why they don't have time to make friends and have friendships. But I'm wondering, are there any deeper reasons than that? Like on a psychological level, what else is going on here with something that's really so important to people on such a fundamental level is not happening and people are, are lonely? Aside from the obvious not enough time thing, is there anything else going on there? Yeah, sure. I, was, I would cite complacency and vulnerability. Uh, complacency uh -huh. is on Saturday morning, what am I going to do? Am I going to lay in bed and binge watch the latest thing on Netflix or am I going to call a friend and meet up with him or her? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be willing to try to cultivate new friendships? Because if I am, I will feel vulnerable in the process. What if I'm rejected? There's always that possibility. How do I begin to get the activation energy to become enthusiastic about meeting somebody new or reinvigorating a not so well attended to old friendship? Perhaps I've fallen out of touch and it's become months and then years yeah. And at some point it's like, oh my gosh, how do I even bridge uh, a communication with someone with whom I've fallen so profoundly out of touch? That's really uncomfortable. Can I tolerate the discomfort on a Saturday, my only day off, because I know I'm working Sunday because I have to call that team out in Bangalore. Yeah. It's more relaxing for me to catch up this way. But to your point about the so-called busyness, Another element is we almost wear our busyness as a medal on our, our suit of armor. It's almost how busy are you and how busy am I? And mm. now it almost becomes a contest as to who's busiest. So is it, I mean, do you see like posturing in potential friendships? Like, sure, maybe I have some time, but I'm pretty busy. So I don't know when I have time. Yeah, I'm pretty busy too. So I don't know when I have time. And then just you end up not having a connection? For sure. Uh, I'm forgetting which comedian, I think it was John Mulaney, was talking about how when you're in your 20s or your teens, the song is almost like tonight is the night, tonight is the night, it's going to be a great night. Mm -hmm. And then as you become more adult, you call your friend and, well, tonight actually isn't going to work. Let's, <laughs> let's get back in touch in maybe a month. And, right. And things kind of fall by the wayside. Yeah, you know, yeah. That without that kind of kinetic energy that, that's so needed to keep a friendship going. Yeah. And you also mentioned this, I think, really interesting and important point about vulnerability. And that's obviously a key thing that underlines, I'm sure, so much of your work on so many different levels. Could you just touch a little bit upon that? Why are people vulnerable? What's going on there? Well, it's actually they're afraid of vulnerability ah. itself. They don't feel safe enough. Brene Brown, who's probably the biggest voice in studying how vulnerability and shame work, we often feel ashamed of something. Oh my gosh, I feel ashamed almost that I don't have friends. You know, the difference between guilt and shame, guilt is I feel guilty for something I did. Shame is for who I am. And there's almost this embarrassment. Oh, can we be friends? <laughs> I, know we're, I know we're in our 30s and uh, we're or 40s and we're successful now, but would it be cool if we went out and grabbed a beer? There's some vulnerability because they might blow you off. They might say no. They might say yes. And they might be on their iPhone the entire time, leaving you feeling less important <laughs> than whatever they're trying to attend to. By the way, that whole phenomenon of being with people on their iPhones. I mean, you look around a restaurant and you see two people sitting there trying to have so-called quality time. Both of them are on their iPhone or worse still, 
it's two adults on their iPhones and a child who's sitting feeling unattended to, or perhaps even worse still, the child is also on the iPhone learning that this is going to be the way that we connect. And that's just not how our brains are wired. Sure. Uh, if you look at uh, the, oh God, I love this video so much. The video of the still face experiment conducted by Ed Tronic out of Harvard University shows three minutes of a mom connecting with her baby, just non-verbally, you can tell she's attuned. And I really wanna use that term because attunement is so, so crucial in all relationships. And then you see her intentionally turning her head and then giving a still face to the baby. Mm -hmm. And immediately the baby knows that something is wrong. And the baby tries to get the mom's attention back using everything the baby has at her disposal. And finally, the baby just loses control of her emotions. And on some level, when people are on their phones, when they're in the presence of a friend, that friend who's, by the way, is giving of him or herself the most precious of commodities, the time, the one, the one thing that we cannot renew, we can lose our money and get it back, we can lose our health and get it back, we can't lose our time and get it back. And when somebody is sitting across from someone else and they're incessantly on the phone, constantly fragmenting a conversation, it conveys a really powerful message, hey, you're not as important as whatever this other thing is. And our brains, which are 40,000 years old, are not accustomed to having that kind of interruption. An interruption would only occur back in the olden days, you know, if it suddenly started to rain or if a warring tribe came by or <laughs> something like that. But our brains are trying to get used to this fragmenting in our connection, in our attunement to each other. And right. It's, and it's tragic. I, I imagine that in the study, the baby that doesn't know any better is just trying desperately to get the mother's attention. I'm guessing in the restaurant with the two friends who are have the have their iPhones, one is just choosing to tune out the other with his or her own iPhone and disconnecting from each other. It's sort of a safe, protective way of just, hey, you're disconnected from me, I'm gonna disconnect from you because that's the safe thing for me to do here. You've got it. So it's almost like, a, <laughs> it's almost a new piece of armor that shows up. Well, yeah, if you're gonna do that, I'll do it too. Yeah, but Adam, why are people afraid to be vulnerable? It's just such an odd thing. So, you know, I'm a successful person uh, at a company in Silicon Valley and there's another person who's interesting and has their own success and we obviously have a lot together. What is it? Why would I be afraid that that person's going to reject me? Uh, it just seems like it would be such a natural thing for the two people to want to connect. Well, you know about stink eye, when you get it even from a stranger, it kind of hurts for yeah. at least a second at least a second and then you might come to your senses, oh, that's a stranger and their assessment of me doesn't matter all that much, but that we are so socially wired to be attuned to how we're being received. If we're received by another and let's say we're two successful people and I decide to take a chance and be vulnerable and I say, hey, you know, I decided after a bunch of years to actually seek therapy. And the other person says, you don't seem crazy. Why mm. would you? And you get shamed or, the other person says TMI to something that you say when you're trying to increase the intimacy. In order for us to be well connected, we need to be mutually vulnerable. We need to be in a uh, judgment-free zone where we feel truly safe. And that 
is what cultivates that type of relating. There's different types of friendships. I mean, there are friends who literally only go out fishing together or go to the ball game together or uh, fix things together. And that's kind of the contract of the friendship. But one of the things that we found is that there are some real healthful benefits if you're willing to go there, if you're willing to be vulnerable and you're received safely, that by upping the ante and the intimacy, increasing the safety and sharing something that you might not share with someone else, and knowing that that will remain secure, that the other person's not going to blab ever about something that they know about you, it will never be used against you, that can really increase the sense of feeling, I'm going to use uh, the metaphor of feeling spotted in this life. I'm using the term of, you know, when you're weightlifting and somebody's spotting you and you're trying to lift a little more than you thought you could, but somebody's there in the event that you can't quite do it or cheering you on, really bringing out your best. Being spotted while you're weightlifting is a lot like having a friend who's spotting you when you're going through something that's really tough around which you might feel very, very exposed or vulnerable, kind of like when a dog puts his tummy up and says, I trust you. And that's something that good friends are able to do with each other if the friendship is at that level. And I would encourage people to do that with people when it's safe. Of course, it takes takes time to know who is truly safe, who's not going to judge you, who's not going to blab your private material. Yeah. So I could see that there's a lot of fear there. You're taking a risk when you get to know somebody or open up to somebody that you're getting to know them on a deeper level. They're learning things about you that you don't necessarily share with other people. And so you're giving them private information, uh, aspects about yourself that if they were to go and misuse that somehow, it it could be hurtful or damaging. It could feel that way. And so there's this, it sounds like an opening up process of, of being vulnerable and trusting that this person is going to hurt me. You got it. And you know that feeling when you're driving away from hanging out with somebody and you said something that might have been a little bit challenging uh, in some way to yourself. Like I shared something that was maybe a seven out of 10 in terms of privacy. You're yeah. driving away wondering, oh gosh, did I drop that too early in the friendship yeah. or, or will the other person be cool with me? Will we still be able to be friends in light of that? Will I be judged? Or sometimes you've made a joke that may have led the other person to in some ways feel like, you know, it's that, that was an inappropriate joke and something that's beautiful about great friends is that there's a lot of room to really be yourself and know that the relationship's going to be able to handle it. And that can only happen after years of being together. I mean, you can become close friends. Uh, There have been studies that show how long it takes to make a friend. And (laughs) in in, in isolation, you can make a a really good friend very quickly. That's one of the reasons why summer camp can be such a a deepening experience. You really find out uh, in a very uh, protected environment who the other person is and how the two of you relate. Well, do you have any suggestions? Like how do, how would people titrate that getting to know somebody and knowing I need to open up to this person enough to connect at a deeper level to form a friendship that maybe goes beyond the sort of superficial acquaintance level, but I don't want to give too much information too fast, trust this person too quickly because I don't know them. I imagine there's some gray area in there that people have to navigate. Absolutely. And you use the medical term titrate of kind of 
steadily increasing the dose. I think that's yeah, sorry really, about I that. that. I think that's a perfect. Yeah. I think that's a perfect verb for what one wants to do when they're trying to enhance the quality of the friendship is to I call it just gentle pings. It's like okay, mm. saying, do I want to share this? Do I want to take the chance? And if I do, really noticing the nonverbal and even asking afterwards, hey man, I just dropped something really personal and asking how was that how was that for you to hear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine I'm thinking about the ping example, and ping is definitely a Silicon Valley term, so I oh, love it. <laughs> right, right, right. I guess I guess for those not in the in the valley, it's it's just kind of a gentle probe of poke. Uh, are we, are, is the relationship really ready for this? Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm guessing like in a case where like one might say, "Hey, I'm having kind of a rough time right now with something." and see what the response is like. And if the response is supportive, caring, empathetic, then one might choose to share that you're going to see a therapist, you're getting some help, deeper things. I, I, I'm guessing that that's the titration is offering a little bit of information and seeing what the response is like. You got it. Yeah. And there's something so magical that can actually happen when you're beginning to cultivate a good friendship. It's the half-life of the visit lasts for hours, if not days after the visit. It's almost like the experience of, <laughs> the, I'm, gonna, I'm going to use a negative experience to convey this. Mm. Uh, you go to Disneyland, you're waiting in line with your kids at It's a Small World, and for the rest of the day, you have this memory of It's a Small World going through your head, and you're going <laughs> to go to sleep, and you can't get to sleep because you kill, you're still hearing that stupid song. And you, uh, you do anything you can, but it's called a cognitive afterimage when that happens. You hear something like that. But cognitive afterimage also occurs when you're with a good friend. You know, the, the, the perceived support that I feel from getting to hang out with my buddy Aaron, having a cup of coffee, giving him a really deep dive of what's going on in my life, walking away saying, I've unburdened myself and my friend totally got it. Not only got it, but he showed me he got it by laughing at the, at the parts where he was supposed to laugh and yeah. offer real empathy um, at the parts where that, you know, that was needed as well, just being so in sync. And the after effects, the half-life, it's like, gosh, I saw him on a Sunday. I'm still feeling the effects of having hung out with my good friend on Wednesday. Yeah. And as I cycle through life and as I see, I, let's say I told you about a boss that I had who I really didn't like, and I see the boss and I remember to see that boss through Aaron's eyes and remember who I am relative to that boss through Aaron's eyes. And it's almost like Aaron is riding shotgun, even though you're not even there. I, mm-hmm. still, I still feel your presence on Wednesday, halfway through the week, long after you and I hung out. It could even be for weeks to come because you've caused me to change how I even see that boss or myself relative to that boss. That's a great friend when that kind of thing happens. Yeah, it's so true. I feel like I'm on such a high after I get together with you or a good friend also. It, it just, it sticks with you for a while and it feels so good. And I totally relate to that. I have to say, when you were giving the Disneyland example, I was almost expecting you to use the Tiki Tiki Room as the <laughs> song. <laughs> and the Tiki 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 <laughs> Room. <laughs> That one works too. It would have worked too. Totally. Um, Adam, I want to get on to a few other questions here that I think are interesting that I wanted to ask you about. 
When we think of friendships and we think of children, children, obviously, they have friendships that are important to them. And we're talking about adult friendships now. Are there similarities and differences between the way children have friends and the way adults have friends? Sure, there's, there's overlap. Children's friendships tend to be dictated by geography, parallel play, perhaps they have a similar, similar interest and over the years, the parallel play becomes more conjoined where they're actually doing something together. It's similar interests in things like music, just like you and I had. And over time, it becomes more and more filtered in terms of who is going to be a good friend. Sometimes in high school, you want to be with somebody who's going to make you look cooler and be a great mm. wingman. And sometimes it's kind of for that social capital that people are looking for in high school. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, the high school student may be a little bit more precocious and be able to say, you know, I, I, I don't want just a superficial relationship. I want to have a, a relationship that's based on depth. That's more the exception than the rule. But over time, some people become golf buddies, and that's really kind of the extent of the friendship. They don't really talk about things at a very deep level while they're golfing. Other people become golf buddies, and they do talk about deep things. Again, more common that that's the exception rather than the rule. You've mentioned several times now about connecting on a, I don't know, a conversational level. I know it's not just about conversation, but it's communicating in a way that connects emotionally and creates that closeness. And I'm guessing that children don't do that. Children don't do that. And adult males don't do that on average either without alcohol. Um, it actually takes alcohol for men. And that's one of the reasons that it's, you know, it, it arrests the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for feeling self-conscious and a whole host of other things and allows men to say, you know, hey, I got a couple drinks in, I can now tell you what's really going on. And I feel less anxious. Whereas women, on average, now these are really broad generalizations sure. I'm using because there are many men who can connect very deeply without any alcohol. But uh, on average, uh, women are more comfortable connecting emotionally. Men are, tend to be more activity-based, even in adulthood. They'll be poker buddies, whereas women will connect more deeply. Uh, and if it's a shared activity, it might be a book club where they actually self-disclose about something during the conversation about the book. I happen to be in a men's book club. It tends to be more intellectual on the whole, but sometimes mm -hmm. there, somebody will disclose something, and it's, it's really quite awesome. Another <laughs> uh, aspect of men to women is that because on average women have more of these emotional ties with more people than men on average, men come to sometimes rely on their wives in a way that can even be burdensome to the wife mm. because she says, I am his social life. I have a social life, but I am his social life. And that can be at times burdensome to a woman and who might really want her husband to be able to have a greater circle of friends. Uh, one of the things that the great Esther Perel talks about, she's one of the uh, couples therapists who's been gaining a lot of international attention for sure. many things, um, including her great book, uh, Mating in Captivity, great mm -hmm. title. But she describes, you know, back in the old days, we had a village. We had somebody with whom we did this activity and that activity, and now we've come to rely on our spouse for everything. Um, and that's particularly so for male to female. I have not seen the studies on same-sex relationships, so I'm not familiar with how those dynamics 
play out. But in kind of conventional heterosexual relationships, that's how these dynamics on average tend to play out. Yeah, and you're talking about how the wives wish their husbands had more friends so they had more of a social life outside of them. But I'm imagining it goes beyond just having a social life to get them out of the house and out of their hair. I imagine it's also, I don't want to say burden, but an emotional, all of the emotional eggs are put into one basket when the man is relying on the woman, the wife, for that emotional support. And I'm wondering if that can be difficult for the wives. Yes, a lot of women do describe it as literally burdensome. A uh, great article appeared earlier this year that described this phenomenon at length, where women are bemoaning the fact that their husbands don't have more people. They are putting all their eggs in one basket. So I, I know this phenomenon, these gender differences are probably pretty complicated, but give us some idea, where does this come from and why? Why are women so much obviously stereotyping here, but why are they so much better at this in general than men tend to be? I'm not certain of the answer, although I'm sure there are many studies that actually support and explain. But one of the things I can talk about is that men historically have hunted together. They've been doing more of the side-by-side thing. They've planted together and farmed together and fixed together. And both of their sets of eyes are going in the same direction and not Mm. toward each other. Whereas women, historically, would breastfeed and sit in a circle and talk, looking at each other's eyes or looking at the baby's eyes. Women have historically, according to this particular study that I've read, been more comfortable with eye-to-eye contact than men. This may be at least one of the uh, attributes as to why women may be more comfortable connecting emotionally than men. That makes sense. So I think you had mentioned that, again, just being very broad and stereotyping here, that men are often more comfortable spending time together doing a shared activity where the focus isn't on them and their relationship and more on the thing that they're doing, whereas women might be more comfortable sitting around and talking, connecting with each other. So over time, it's a chicken and egg question. Did we become this way? because of the way we have behaved and and our brain has evolved Mm -hmm. over time to reflect that? Or were our brains originally like that? And I'm going to guess both. Right. I I mean, it would make sense that there's maybe some differences in the limbic systems between males and females. And on top of that, differences in socialization that just sort of connect and create a different type of phenomenon, the way men and women connect. But yeah, go ahead. And one other thing, I, I, in the corpus callosum, which actually is the little piece of real estate that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, is thicker than it is in men, which implies a greater flexibility amongst women to go from hemisphere to hemisphere and go from function to function than men who might be kind of more monocularly focused on one thing, kind of more of a tunnel vision approach, whereas women may be able to flow from one thing to another. Uh, with greater ease. So in your work, are you encouraging and trying to help men improve that part of their relationship with each other to basically emulate what women do so well? Uh, I would I would actually say it's what men can do so well. Uh, that mm. it's it, There's a distinctly masculine flavor to the way men can relate in this way. 
And uh, it's done in many societies, just in this particular Western society in which we live, mm -hmm. uh, the United States, where people are kind of rugged individuals. It hasn't really been something that has been culturally affirmed by the greater population. And that's one of the reasons why, in spite of the fact that we're more connected than ever electronically, we are more lonely, that suicide rates are at an all-time high, loneliness rates are at an all-time high. It's been considered a, literally an epidemic. Um, the former Surgeon General cites it as such. And I agree, we are lonely, especially men, and men can relate in a really distinctly masculine way. The goal is not to get men to behave like women, it's to mm -hmm. increase men's flexibility in connecting and and it starts with connecting with themselves. To use a fancy term, alexithymia. Alexithymia literally means the absence of being able to describe one's emotional experience. A lot of times men come in my office and I ask them how they feel and they give me thoughts. Well, I feel like this or I feel that. I feel like or I feel that is clear evidence that the next word will be a thought and not an actual I'm remembering there was an episode on um, Mad Men. Did you ever watch that? Love that show. Best. Oh, it's so good. Right. And so there was one episode. I don't remember the characters' names. I'm usually not good at recalling these things. But it just it just struck me that one of the characters' fathers, I think, died in a plane crash that crashed in the Hudson River or something like that. And he's at work and he's talking to a coworker about it. And he's sort of pondering. He, I think he says something like, hmm, what does one feel when one's father dies in a plane crash in the Hudson River? What does one feel? I don't remember that line, but that's so good. And I want, I want the gif of that. That's so powerful. Yes, you got it. You got it. It's not that they're psychopaths. It's not, it's not that, that, that they're highly autistic. It's that they're so cut off. They've been socialized and they've conditioned themselves not to have access to that. And one of the things that we know about the human brain, at least the studies by uh, Damasio out of MIT, is if you remove the emotional centers from the brain, those brains cannot make decisions at all. We, men who describe themselves as being unemotional uh, have half the truth. They actually are quite emotional. The emotions are coursing through them all day at the same rate as anybody else, it's, except they just don't see them and they feel like they're happening to them rather than able to attend to them in some kind of intelligent way. And that's one of the reasons why men sometimes allow themselves to be triggered and, and react badly to a situation. They don't have as much connection with their emotional experiences. And one of the things that friendship allows for, if it evolves in this direction beyond just activities, is a deeper knowing of yourself because you are with someone around whom you feel safe. And um, you almost become this bilateral incubation room for uh, actually having an emotional life. I'm, I'm guessing, Adam, I'm imagining you in your office there in San Jose with these high-functioning Silicon Valley executives and CEOs coming in and wondering, what am I really going to get out of this here? I'm, I'm coming. I think I need to be here. People are maybe encouraging me to come. And you're telling them, well, if you become more in touch with your emotional self and understand that better, you will actually be more effective and more efficient in the way you do everything because you're more comfortable with this very important part of yourself that's key in helping make decisions and operate. And I'm guessing they love to hear that. That's probably a real selling point in trying to pitch this to men about why it's actually important to them. Yeah, and sometimes they just 
somehow intuitively get that. Mm -hmm. They often will come in and say something like, you know, I'm here because my wife sent me here. I'm not sure I believe in therapy. I kind of frankly think it's a bunch of crap and I'm going to give it one session. I'll see how it goes. And usually by around minute 40, just by the safety that I'm able to create. And, I, and they also know I'm a guy. I'm not, I, I relate to them where they are in a way that I, I would describe as distinctly masculine, just more open and more allowing for the expression of emotions. I would say the vast majority of men say, sign me up for another session I'm in. And very frequently I will get a, uh, a call from the spouse weeks or months later saying, hey, listen, I know you can't call me back, but my husband's been seeing you for the last several weeks or months. And oh my gosh, he's a different guy. I'm so in love with him. I'm so, so into him. And oftentimes they'll report that their sex lives have gotten better and they feel more connected and they're better at work. And they just know in their guts and just from external feedback that they're getting from a host of places that life is better when you're dialed in. It's so interesting that you say that because that's exactly my experience as well as a therapist that a lot of the times the men come in, they seem a little hesitant. They're not sure what they're going to get out of it. They're usually urged by their wives or whoever. And by the end of the first session, they're, they are hooked. That's been my experience too, most of the time. So that's interesting that that's sort of a universal finding here, universal between you and me, at least. Sure. Yeah. And, and in my own work that I've done on myself over the years, I've found that coming to know myself better has allowed me to be far more flexible, far better as a husband, as a son, as a father, as a friend, all of these places in my life. And just as a member of the community, having that opportunity to uh, know yourself through therapy is a great way actually to enhance your friendships. Mm -hmm. Like I've already said this, I said this to a therapist, I was not shamed. I feel somehow the courage to share this now with a friend and see how this goes. Sure. So the relationship with the therapist provides a bit of a template on how a connected relationship with somebody else might go if that isn't an experience the person has had before. Exactly. It's a really good testing zone. I want to get on to social media. We talked a little bit about that earlier, and this is a whole area that you and I did not grow up with social media. No, we're, we're immigrants. We're, yeah, we're, it's a little new for us. And I have the millennial patients that I work with sometimes are always teaching me new things about what goes on with that. But still, it must be something that comes up a lot in this concept of adult friendships. And I don't know what to make of it. I mean, is a Facebook friend really a friend? Tell me what you think on this issue of friendships and social media. Fortunately, there are studies around this and a Facebook friend, if that is the main event, I'm afraid that you don't have real friends. Mm. Let's say you had 150 Facebook friends and you were to share something big, like maybe something a little painful. Only four of those people would actually offer legitimate help. Mm -hmm. So if, however, you have a ton of Facebook friends, but you also have many in real life friends with whom you meet on a regular basis and really are, have a very clean upload and download of content and information. And you have these several hundred Facebook friends. That's a great supplement. And there's some, there is something to be said about the support that one receives from Facebook. 
you can get support from a wider audience. I know somebody who's going through chemo right now and she gets a lot of love. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of studies that show that as an additional area, a supplemental area, having that perceived support of those hearts and those thumbs ups and those comments from a wide audience of people can increase our own subjective well-being. But if it's the only game that we have and that's all we do, we're kind of screwed. Has there been a shift in the reliance of social media taking place of adult friendships? And do you see any detrimental aspect of this new social phenomenon with technology? Yeah. And, and I, I actually just want to amend what I said. I, the, the we're kind of screwed. We're not necessarily kind of screwed. We just need to beef up our real life friends and call people up on the phone, get together, find ways to actually have in real life conversations. But um, to your question about the detriment, I remember when social media showed up in my office for the very first time on kind of a regular basis. It was around 2009. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I couldn't have imagined this becoming a real thing. Mm -hmm. like, this is an amorphous entity that is beginning to evolve. <laughs> I remember in the early aughts when um, reality television came online for the very first time and people were talking about the reality TV stars as if they knew them. Yeah, There's an obsession that we have. It's almost like meth. The dopamine uh, receptors that are active when we do things like meth or other substances, including chocolate, which is a delicious way to get <laughs> dopamine. Yes. You can have a really come down and, and a side effect profile of its own. Um, we have a dopamine, uh, dopaminergic experience around Facebook and other social media. It's almost like we feel compelled to fragment our lives by seeing how many likes did that one get almost multiple times an hour. People who do this for a specific amount of time every day, perhaps a lesser amount of time than they might want, but maybe once a day, there appear to be fewer toxic effects of social media as a thing, but most people are on it multiple times within the hour every day. And it becomes, it becomes an addiction. Kind of like the, the pigeons in those experiments that keep pressing the button to the get lever, the, yeah. to get the, and the, the reward. They get this yeah. reward of the pigeon food and then they keep on pressing to get the next pigeon food and then the pigeon food doesn't come. And so they press even more because there's an intermittent schedule of reinforcement. I'm just getting into my operant conditioning stuff here, but I mean, it just oh, seems yeah. like there's, there's a real reward system built in there for being glued to social media. Well, it's funny that you use that intermittent rewarding concept. I mean, as you and I both know, and, and many people listening probably also know that the way to really increase a behavior is to randomize the reinforcement. And that's right. one of the reasons why slot machines work. I mean, I think you remember seeing me when I was 22 years old. <laughs> oh, no. In Vegas, and you, were, you were actually concerned about my well-being. Oh, no. I'm so glued to the machines. And you said that I'd actually kind of left the building. Well, I'm, I'm pleased yes. to say that I know myself. I don't do that. Uh, and I haven't done it since. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like people are on the slot machines daily saying, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? And that's actually not a very healthy thing. It becomes kind of a narcissistic game. And one of the things that we know about mental health is the more we're in our own heads, the more likely we are to feel depressed, the more likely we are to feel anxious. And the way that we actually feel better is getting out of our experience, getting connected with another person. Of course, we need to be in our own heads sometime, but being there all the time 
asking how I'm doing and being in this narcissistic, self-absorbed world of social media and, and engaging in social comparisons and engaging in FOMO and engaging in all of these things. The best way to feel bad about yourself for having just bought yourself a new Tesla is to see that your next door neighbor just got himself a new McLaren mm. uh, or something like that. I and mean, suddenly your Tesla isn't quite as shiny uh, mm. as it was a few minutes ago because how did he get a McLaren? Well, a good way of enjoying what you have is really taking inventory of what you have and being grateful and solidifying that. And unfortunately, social media becomes a deluge of people in the Caribbean having the vacation of their lives. Oh my gosh, my company just IPO'd and oh my gosh, how much did that person make relative to what I'm making? And suddenly right, there's a lot of comparing going on. Oh my know. God, it's huge. One final question that I had on my list here that I really wanted to check in with you about, and that's this concept of introversion and introverts, hmm. because I know they tend to have a different relationship to socializing. They often need a lot more downtime. They need to recharge their batteries by spending time alone. And it's a lot of effort sometimes for introverted people to engage with other people. Like you were talking about earlier about the amount of energy that it might take for somebody to get up, get off the couch, make an appointment, go see somebody. And I think with introverts, that can be twice as hard because engaging with people does take a lot of mental energy, even though they often report that they find it rewarding when they do it. They enjoy relationships with people, but it's harder. And I'm just wondering how that plays into this theme of adult friendships for the introverts. Introverts are, in fact, less likely to put themselves out there. Uh, I love Susan Cain's brilliant TED Talk and her brilliant book on on quiet, the secret power of introversion yeah. in a world that won't stop talking. I mean, the United States is a country that really embodies extroversion. There are many countries that are more introverted in nature. You go to, say, Norway. Uh, one of the jokes about Norway is, I'm told this is a Norwegian joke. How can you tell if a Norwegian likes you? And the answer is, he's looking at your shoes and not his. Um, <laughs> and, um, and yet, Norway is one of the happiest country in the world. Happiest countries in the world, actually, I think it is the happiest country in the world. And they tend to be more uh, leaning toward introversion. Introverts really do require a lot of activation energy. They find especially small talk to be insufferable. If they're going to talk, they want to have some time to think. And in American conversation, it's like we allow, it's almost like radio, we allow for no silences. Yeah. And that's hard for an, an introvert because an introvert needs a little more time to actually think about what they're going to say and answer it well and to their liking because the answer is not going to be just noise on average. It's going to be on average a substantial answer and actually more likely to be true. Extroverts are willing to just keep the music going more, more often. For introverts to engage with other introverts, that can go very well or it can go very badly. Sometimes Susan Cain herself for example, married an extrovert, and she loves being with an extrovert. And an extrovert, if they were wanting to befriend an introvert, which I think is a must for all extroverts, introverts have a lot to teach extroverts. The extrovert needs to be attuned. The extrovert needs to realize that there will be silences and that the introvert needs perhaps a little bit more quiet to dive into what's up for them. 
I think it's really important to have these bilateral relationships between people who are a little different from ourselves and yet people with whom we can feel known and attuned to and by. So the introvert may selectively choose friendships with people who will understand their needs a little bit better, be more sensitive to them, even if that person might be an extrovert. And that's interesting. A, a few shows ago, I had Trisha Burke on talking about highly sensitive people. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned how important it was for highly sensitive people to really understand that some people will get them better than others will. And those are probably safer people for them to have relationships with. Right. And that's all we're looking for. To the question of vulnerability earlier, I mean, our brains have evolved to be so social that the feeling of rejection, the feeling of stink eye, the feeling of not being attuned to, the feeling of not being liked is terrifying. It almost feels deadly to us. But for an introvert, I mean, just the exhaustion factor of, of not feeling understood or, or feeling like they've just been engaging with a blowhard who had no interest in who they were, they, they return to their car or to their lives feeling entirely depleted. And one of the things that I use as a metric for whether or not you've been with a really good friend is something I loosely refer to as the drive-away test. And it's apropos of this conversation around introverts. How do you feel after having met with your friend for any amount of time as you're driving away? Oftentimes we drive away. Could be walking away, could be getting in a subway, but how do you feel as you're departing? Do you feel taller, happier, stronger, more full of life? Or do you feel deflated, exhausted, in some ways maybe a little bit depressed about who you are? These driveway tests are very indicative. Of course, you're not going to feel great every time you leave your friend, but if on average, you're not feeling good, it's a sign that something needs to be attended to. It might be relational. It might be, hey, the introvert might need to bolster him or herself to say to the other party, hey, I need some airtime. I don't feel like I'm being heard enough. And here's, here's how it would work. You'd ask me how I'm doing, and you'd really maybe even reflect back what you're hearing or, or, or just really take time to listen. And that takes some vulnerability to do that. Oh, God, yes. That's terrifying. Yeah. So Adam, I, one last thing before we end up here, I'm seeing a book in everything that you're talking about here. Like this has to be a book about adult friendships, male adult friendships, whatever. Like you have some amazing insights, a ton of clinical experiences. Please write something about this. It's funny you should mention that. I have something in the works and I'm hoping to have something to present to publishers in the not so distant future. So, oh, wow. <laughs> okay, well, sign me up. I'll be the first one to buy a copy of that when you publish something. Right on. And I'm sure you'll be mentioned in the book as, as a case study uh, for <laughs> oh. what, it, what, what, what a good friend looks like. Well, I'd be honored. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. So great to be with you, Aaron. Dr. Adam Dorsey, clinical psychologist in San Jose, California. Be sure to check out the blog that will be accompanying this program on my website. I'll have links to any information that Dr. Dorsey has uh, available for his own practice and resources of other things that he's done, such as his TED Talk and some other podcasts, and keep an eye out for that.
Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron.